My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined finally by Spencer Clavin. Uh, Spencer is the uh, associate editor at the Claremont Institute, the features editor of The American Mind, and the host of the excellent Young Heretics show. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you so much, Alex. It's great to finally come on. Uh, we were just talking about how I've been a fan of your work for a while, so it's great to meet you in person. Sort of. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to hear that. It's always shocking to me that you know people that I follow and admire myself, you know, say insane stuff like that. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> I'm uh, I'm very happy to to finally have you on. You were you were definitely on my short list for for the longest time because you are um, a very rare breed um, in the sense that. You are a learned man and you are a classicist uh, and you, um, among other things, you contain multitudes, obviously, um, but you are um, like Victor Davis Hanson, one of the other people that I, I greatly admire in this world. You have a um, an education in the classics. Obviously, you went to Oxford, you went to Yale, but Oxford is, I think, even more, even more meaty and even more interesting. Um, so... As a, as a layman, if you're a, um, a denizen of the modern hellscape and you're interested in the classics and you want to study the classics, how might one approach this? Um, uh-huh. what, what do you do? Where do you start? Well, that's a great place to begin because one of the things that really shocked me when I launched the podcast you mentioned, Young Heretics, which is basically just a, an attempt to answer this question in some ways, is basically just you know, an hour a week on some great book that you've probably heard of, but maybe never read. And I thought that that was going to be a sort of lark, like a passion project that nobody was particularly interested in. But what the hell, everybody has podcasts, you know, do podcasts. Um, and in fact, it turned out that there was this enormous hunger, like it was like offering a morsel of food in your hand, and then people like eat your whole arm, because they're just so <laughs> hungry. <laughs> um, and so the first sort of barrier I think that most people in my experience have to get past is the I'm not that smart barrier. I have a lot of conversations with listeners or just people that write in or whatever. And now nowadays, you know, I'll like be at the gym and somebody says, hi, I know your show or whatever. And when we talk, it's like the first thing that people say, especially uh, probably people that you know would listen to this podcast or my podcast or whatever. The, the the first thing they say is, "Well, I'm not a very interesting person. I'm not a very smart person." There's this sort of weird, like, negative self talk that they introduce themselves to. And as I started to press that, you know, when people say that, I sort of say, "Why do you say that?" Well, usually, the answer is, you know, I was I was homeschooled, or I you know work X or Y menial job. I'm a you know I work with my hands. And and therefore, they have this sense, people have this sense that they're like, not part of this conversation, and that they don't have the tools that there exist out in the world, some tools that like experts have, 
and professionals can use, but that they are not qualified to like come to a work of great literature, work of classics and say something, you know, have a response that is legitimate. And it's true that some of these texts, especially the stuff I work on most, which is ancient Greek stuff. And that's, I think, you know, really at the heart of the tradition. Um, some of this stuff, you know, it, you, it, it, it helps, it pays to have advanced training. But the point of that advanced training is to open up what is a huge body of inherited literature from what I call the West and what most people I think would call the West. Um, that is for you, you know, that's, that's supposed to be saying something about your life. Like I, the example I always use is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. That's one of the books that I give to people first, because that's a book about how to be human and how to be good at being human. And that implies all sorts of things that maybe you've never thought about, like that a human being is a kind of thing and that you can be good at it and so forth. Um, and I, I think that, that the first step on this journey is like just realizing that these books exist to speak to you. Um, and there's a whole industry that des is designed to stop people from realizing that the books exist for them. You know, that, that uh, Homer and Aristotle and another example I often give is Virgil, you know, um, these are, these are books that with, with some thought and maybe, you know, listening to people you trust, uh, they're, they're supposed to be speaking to you as a human being. And, and I think that, that that's the first step for any layman is like just sort of getting over the sense that, there exists a kind of expert class and really this stuff is for them and they are the only ones with the authority to tell you sort of how to quote unquote use these books like they, they really are for you and then I think getting together with other people is the last thing I'll say like that's the other advice uh, that I, I mean the, the internet makes this incredibly possible that people can form these book clubs and, and group chats and whatever um, and somebody said on, on Twitter once that we live in this weird, weird world where the uh, you know, the jocks all watch Disney movies and, you know, eat mass produced trash and the nerds all, or rather it's the other way around. The nerds all watch Disney movies and the cool kids are the ones that are like getting together and reading like ancient literature and go to the gym and all the stuff. Exactly. So, Revenge of the jocks. I like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Uh, because it's, but you know, our, our values are so inverted. I think that, that, you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one eyed man is king. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree with that, and it's uh you know I I like to think of myself as on the on the side of the jocks, <laughs> even though I don't I don't feel like it every day. Um, there there is a kind of a component of a, it's it's a bit of a slog sometimes to to parse these texts, and I think uh, I think that's probably something that that's been forgotten. The idea of um of learning as, uh, as, uh, overcoming un like discomfort a little bit. Mm -hmm. I feel like you know, people kind of expect it to be, I don't know, this, uh, Marvel <laughs> cinematic universe <laughs> thing that you can just, yeah. Okay. Absorb. So maybe, uh, is there a way to kind of soften the, the impact or like start with some introductions to the works or something like that? Definitely. I mean, Aristotle said something very similar to what you're saying, which is metalupes he mathesis, the learning comes with pain. And I've always, I, I love that. I had, I had a professor in college that had that like uh, post-it noted to her door that it's going to hurt uh, to, to really improve. And of course, this, we know this in other spheres, right? If you want to, if you want to lose weight, you got to go on a diet, that's going to hurt. Want to, you know, get, get big and whatever. And, and this is true also for, for reading. And then I also think though, that that can be taken way too far. Like James Joyce said of, I can't remember if it was Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake, but one of these big, you know, impossible to incomprehend modernist, uh, novels, 
he said, I, I spent, you know, a day writing every page. And so I expect you to spend a day reading every page. And that's, that's not how that works. Like that's the kind of arrogance that that's the kind of arrogance that I was talking about. Like these are these supposed to be these you know, unapproachable tomes. Um, and there are definitely, you know, finding a good edition. This is one good use for experts and nerds such as myself, like, you know, finding a good edition that is going to explain to you not what the latest scholarly debate is about like how many uh, people Homer might have been and whether Shakespeare was a black woman, but rather, you know, what was the point of writing this text at all? Um, so a, a great example of this is a fellow like Bernard Knox, who interprets um, and introduces all of uh, Robert Fagel's translations of, of the Greek and indeed Latin classics. Um, and Knox was just a wonderful, he had that kind of ease of interpretation. Um, and I think that scholars who have this ability, right, to kind of bridge that gap between, you know, spending a page, spending a day on every page, which is impossible for most people, and, you know, and, and taking that sort of intense scholarly engagement and then offering something of it from, uh, you know, from his work to the people that, you know, maybe don't have that much time. Um, that's a really underappreciated scholarly tool. Um, the apocryphal book of Ben Sirach has this wonderful description of the scholar as the man that goes into, he ponders over the law of the Lord day and night, but he also, he goes into the treasure house and he sifts through all of this stuff and he rummages through things. And then he comes to the people and he says, you know, oh, you people, uh, the full moon reflects the light now blossom uh, like, like, like roses beside the stream. This idea that the, the scholar is this reflector who's supposed to take just the, the light of truth and kind of shine it toward people with real concerns doing real things. So, so looking for people that can do that for you is like a really good uh, way to get over that hump too. So, you know, Bernard Knox is an example. Jacques Barzan is another example. A lot of people like Harold Bloom. Um, and, and, and this is, again, also what we do on Young Heretics. This whole point of the show basically is to form that bridge so that even if learning comes with pain and some of the pain is kind of the good, healthy pain of, of getting stronger, you don't want that pain to be completely prohibitive. And if it is, you know, there's probably somebody out there that's really eager to help. <laughs> yeah. And that, that someone is Spencer Clavin. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Spencer. And I, I, I really recommend the podcast. I haven't listened to all the episodes, but the ones that I, I caught, you know, were very illuminating about things that I know nothing of, I have to admit. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's really, really useful. Um, I think one of one of the concepts that uh, is is rooted in a way, at least uh, as far as I know, in, in the Nicomachean ethics, um, the, kind of the, a very different concept of freedom than the one that is uh, used by by most people nowadays, or at least the freedom that's that's you know the, the neoliberal flavor of freedom that we discuss on this podcast quite a lot. Um, I wonder, you as someone with a grounding in in, uh, in the classics, what is your conception of freedom? Well, yeah, I mean, now we are touching on the heart of, I think, really America's current problem is forgetting the world's forgetting current this, problem. You know, the world's <laughs> current problem, right? Exactly. Um, and so, the, there are a million different ways to draw this distinction classically, right? One of the famous ones is freedom from and freedom to. Um, so, if you have freedom from something, then you're not going to be bothered by other people. But if you have freedom to do something, then you have this you gain a capacity. And and getting freedom to do things takes all sorts of constraints. You know, you have to essentially let's say, for example, that you want the freedom to uh, you know not worry about about 
sexual license and build a family in, in the security of love, right? You have to cut off all sorts of other freedoms, you know, that you would otherwise like to have, right? Freedoms to uh, sleep with any woman you want, freedoms to just, you know, self-define at every moment. Um, and that excess of, of sort of autonomous freedom is what we're up against, as, as you well know, and, and you've written about, right? Like that this, this sense of yourself as kind of a little undefined dot among a million other dots, and you can go anywhere and do anything and shape the clay of your body into anything you want. Um, turns out that is actually paralyzing. It turns out that that's not freedom at all. It's, it's this kind of um, emptiness because then you look around and, you know, there's nothing determining why you might or might not do X or Y or Z. Right. And even to say something like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to refrain from killing you instead of killing you. Right. Actually requires certain constraints. It's you know, the more, the moral universe has to exist before, before you can say that. Um, and, and so on the other side of that, I think that as a reaction, we're kind of veering away from, that you know, some conservatives say are sort of veering away from that big autonomous uh, emptiness toward this idea that like freedom is freedom to choose the right thing, um, and to me that seems like an, an extreme in the opposite direction, and kind of you know probably a better extreme because it's it's closer to Aristotle's idea, which is that you know as we uh, put more and more constraints upon ourselves, we gain more and more capacities and abilities. Um, but I would I would modify that because I think that really what America is, is fighting to find again is the context within which liberalism makes sense. You read, you read all these, you know, these liberal texts, John Stuart Mill, and even before that, you know, uh, Milton is kind of a proto-liberal in, in some ways. Um, and you notice that they take all sorts of things for granted. Like they take for granted that, well, of course, you know, blasphemy and, and, and idolatry, these, these things aren't going to be permitted, you know, um, or, or, or Mill has a section where he says, well, if a, if a person goes mad and he, he walks off a bridge, then you can, you can stop him. You can arrest his freedom that way. And what's interesting is they never explain these things. They just sort of, you know, they assume that everybody they're talking to understands. And that's because they're, they're talking, operating within a context where the parameters of, of, where you could make good and bad choices are pretty neatly calibrated, you know, um, things like, for example, you, you can have a lot of arguments about God, but you can't say that God requires infanticide. Right. And so this thing that we've done now where we'll say, oh, we have freedom of, of religion and therefore Satanists are protected under the constitution. To me, that represents exactly this problem, right? It's, it's using, it, it's so much freedom that your words don't mean anything anymore. And so my, the definition that I wish we could get back to or that I think we're working our way back to is, you know, freedom is, is a choice within the constraints of what's absolutely true. And, and setting those constraints is something every society does. We think we can get away from this, but we can't. And so really it's about, you know, finding the limits of, of our reasonable knowledge and letting people be free to choose within, within those limits. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's, um, you know, that's kind of the, like you, like you said, you've kind of laid out the, the main, um, the main struggle nowadays between the kind of the, the core norm, con in a way, I mean, like the, the, the more enlightened, right. And the more extreme kind of dissident, right. Which I'm at least adjacent to, if not fully part of. And, um, it's, um, it's, it's a complicated subject because I think the, the argument there that, you know, dissident right makes is that, uh, the, the, um, 
this this type of freedom, kind of the autonomous type of freedom, is is not only um, you know is is not only a kind of a bad in itself, is also as like a solvent of the yeah. conditions that that would allow for the type of liberalism that we kind of want. We want a certain bounded freedom, but if autonomous freedom is the kind of freedom we allow in the system, the one that you know we have, it acts as this kind of this universal solvent that that you know breaks the unchosen bonds that, um, you know, that acts in a sense as um, a revealed preference of, of people where they just, if, if this is on the table, they'll take it. And in the process, they'll be, you know, destroying their relationships, their family relationships with, uh, with their community, with, with any sort of tradition. So um, I think I'm, I'm partial to that argument. Um, Obviously, I would like it to not be true at the same time because I do want, you know, I, obviously I can see the benefit of, of autonomy, you know, for the individual, but it seems like that um, that humans need a certain need certain parameters, and how strict those parameters have to be, I think, is is an open question. But it feels like, for example, COVID. COVID seems to be like a, a, a living example of the fact that, you know, you have external parameters shoving themselves into your life and people just, you know, having a sigh of relief almost collectively that someone comes into your house and, you know, tells you when to wake up, what to wear, if you can go out or not. You know, they, they kind of, some a lot of people really like that type of, of, parameterization of their life because uh, yeah. they're missing it. Well, I, I definitely think that that's true. And that's a big part of COVID forever, right? Is, you know, in addition to the anonymity, there's also the, just the, the desperate desire for there to be some authority that tells you, like, now you must remember. And you look at the way that people reacted to the CDC flip recently on masks, right? You know, nothing changed about COVID or the science overnight, but literally overnight. I mean, you would go to a restaurant one night and everybody has to wear masks and you go to a restaurant the next night and it's, of course, this is fine, you know. And so that that's that need, right, for somebody that sets the rules. Um, and I think part of what you're saying maybe, and correct me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting, part of what you're saying is that like that autonomy, that that freedom to choose is is sort of like um a reactive, it's like nuclear waste, like it has a kind of reactive uh, potential. And that you have to be careful when you handle it, because it corrupts the things around it, too. And so if you if you start talking about freedom in this area, you know, let's say freedom to choose your denomination of Christianity, then you're inevitably going to get people that say, well, why can't you choose not Christianity? Why can't you choose Judaism or Islam? And then, then you're gonna get people who say, why can't you choose not religion at all. Why like, can't you say? I mean, what you know, it kind of eats away at the edges of of any system that it's that's put into. Right? I mean, is that sort of what you're suggesting? Yeah, kind of in, in a way, um, especially because, like, for example, um, it 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 dissolves any sort of unchosen bond in the sense, or or anything that's interpreted as unfreedom by the system. For example, um, if you're, uh, I don't know, if you have a group of people that, you know, like a men's club or something that's already considered, you know, it's a freedom of association on the one hand, but at the same time, it's excluding other members, you know, maybe women want to come in, maybe children want to come in, who knows, you know, it's, um, if you have any sort of a situation which is interpreted as the freedom making system from the outside as unfreedom, you cannot maintain that. So, uh, or like, for example, even the family unit is seen as restrictive or, um, um, kind of, 
corrupting by by um, by a lot of people or you know like uh, authoritarian even uh, so that's also something that's slowly trying to be eroded because you know obviously parents have a lot of authority over their children and um, you know the school system might have different things to teach them so it, there's there's a push to to kind of dissolve these unchosen bonds because um, at the same time they, they might there might be privileges in being in one family rather than another so that's also something that the system does not like so it's slowly slowly inching in and trying to dissolve these things so even if you say okay you, for example you want to live a traditional life can you do it in a world where you know all of the incentive points uh all of the incentives point to to everyone else you know not cooperating in your in your system and you essentially not being allowed to participate in that yeah well you touched very briefly on i think the the term that really aggravates a lot of these issues, and that's freedom of association. I mean, this is, to me, one of the most neglected constitutional freedoms, constitutional rights, um, and one of the ones that was most threatened by the civil rights era. I mean, kind of fundamentally, and even in its in its best version, civil rights at law, um, does pose a real challenge to this. And on exactly the grounds that you're suggesting, which is that if people exercise this choice, then they will exercise it in a way that infringes on other people's freedoms. And, you know, the best po- the, the, the best case scenario argument that I can see for that is, you know, this was a unique problem in American history and we needed a kind of uh, kludge or quick fix to, to sort of solve it. Um, I don't think that really works either, but the, the point is, is bigger than the civil rights thing, right? The point is, is that the fact that there is a freedom of association or should be suggests to me that actually America's founders had a much more nuanced and sophisticated idea about this question than just the libertarian idea, which they're sometimes sort of given, right? I mean, I, I think that everybody wants there to be a kind of equation or system where you can balance these two desires, the desire for freedom and the desire for, for constraints, even chosen constraints, like the kind you're describing. Um, and I think that the founders actually didn't ha- weren't creating a system. I think they were, they were identifying the points at which we can most effectively enforce positive freedom and the points at which we can most effectively enforce negative freedom. And freedom association is a really important part of that because it, it basically uh, insists, this was Madison's idea, that there are going to be little carve-out places in the country where you can restructure the world and for not only for yourself, but for your children and for anybody that wants to live with you, um, such that there are these chosen bonds and even older and more traditional ways of living. And I think one of the things that happens during the civil rights era, but that is also kind of implicit in some of the ways that Mill talks about this stuff is that everything gets so nationalized uh, and so and so democratized in the kind of negative sense that that's no longer acceptable to the regime, as, as you're describing, right? You have to find these pockets now and eliminate them. Um, and I think one of the reasons why people are really recovering localism right now and on the right um, is is because they realize that probably in America, you know, <laughs> monarchic theocracy or whatever you want to wish for is, is, is really an impossibility, never mind an undesirable. Um, but that, in fact, the, the idea, the initial idea was for kind of little pockets of American life um, to, to play out this balance in different ways and to calibrate the balance 
uh, in ways that were more and less appealing for people and for people then to be able to move to places where where it was better or worse. Um, I don't know if you think that's that in itself is a pipe dream. I mean, you tell me, but that, I think that's the country we're living in. It's that. definitely not more of a of a pipe dream than you know the the integralist state. I mean, <laughs> as much as I, I I liked you know the the musings of of the the, think, the thinkers on that side, I just don't think that's going to be without some form of alien invasion. Some I don't know integralist, very charismatic Caesar type figure. <laughs> I don't see it happening. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, and I think in a way, localism even makes makes sense just because of the fragility of the main system, um, because it just does not work. You know, it doesn't really stand the test of reality. This this whole wokeness thing that we're we're all trying to do <laughs> at one point. You know, it, it's already making absolutely embarrassing blunders, and at least from I subscribe to a kind of a flavor of elite theory. I think the more embarrassments the, the, the regime accumulates and the, the, the less people want to be associated with the ideology of the regime. Uh, and, you know, the smarter people will want to defect first. And if that happens, then, that, then there's probably going to be a preference cascade at one point. And if you layer on top the internet on that, things happen very fast. So I think... You know, an, an elite flip is is more likely than not. I don't know what the timeline is, though. Obviously, no one can make predictions, but uh, it's it's looking it's looking good for that. And then, obviously, also all of this decentralized technology that people are building and localism as well. You know, the the, the problem is just I just don't want to get into nuclear war before that happens because no, that know. seems looming as well. Oh, believe me, I, I have found this so difficult to speak meaningfully or interestingly into this this whole Ukraine thing. Um, and I was wondering whether one reason for that is that, of course, there's the, the, the highly complex geopolitics of it all. And there is the, you know, unique history of these two regions and, and two countries, which Americans are, I, I include myself here, strikingly ill-equipped to deal, to think in a serious way about the idea that there might be other countries with other histories and other values that are, that are working those those out. And so there's, there's that element of it, but I also just think there's a fall of man element of it. And I've, I think this has been true for COVID too. It's like at a certain point you get tired of saying like, we actually do live in a broken world and there's no way out of that. And the, all of the, you know, the shock that this was not actually the end of history, even though, you know, even though Fukuyama was not saying that in that book, people have adopted this idea that like, countries just don't expand aggressively expand their borders anymore and people don't have to go off to war for things that they don't care about and the drafts don't happen i mean that even if we would wouldn't say that we believe that i think in our hearts we we kind of have made this this private deal with the world that actually we live in a, a pretty quiet and and staid uh moment and it's going to be that way for our whole lives and and so yeah i mean i i think that this is one version of because the other option besides the elite cascade that you were talking about right is the the strong man just steamrolls right on through and you know the cycle of regimes begins again i mean when 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 societies decay as far as ours has decayed uh you sort of set your watch for the period when it's going to devolve completely into mob rule and then out of mob rule there will emerge a strong man um I'm still much more optimistic than some of my friends and and uh, followers that we are, you know, we have a fighting chance of avoiding that scenario. But the, you know, the the reality of war in the Ukraine is that it it does sort of show that that's a very real possibility lurking just around the corner, and there's no like writing that off or refusing to pay the debts of history forever. Yeah, it's um, 
it's it's a it's a strange one being being in Romania and essentially all um my, my husband he's from New Zealand all of his relatives are just writing every day they're like shouldn't you leave yeah well. <laughs> you know like uh do you have iodine tablets <laughs> things like that I'm like oh, I don't know <laughs> I'll get I to mean it. how are you like what what's your what's your uh mental and emotional state worried um but at the same time i mean it's it's very hard to parse if you look at all of the the things that are being said online and the narrative the speed at which the narrative is going right now it's it's a very very strange time um obviously i I'm, I'm not pro putin you cannot be pro putin live, living in in the at the fringes of his empire you know he's uh he's obviously a, a strong man in the classical tradition of eastern europe uh he does not um he he probably has good intentions for his own people but we are not his people. So mm. he has neutral or negative intentions towards us. So you don't really want to be in this situation. Um, I, I don't personally believe that it's going to expand beyond the borders of Ukraine. If NATO does not get involved, if, if NATO does get involved, we're going to be the front line of Europe. So that's, um, yeah, it's a complicated <laughs> situation to think through. Hopefully, yeah, yeah hopefully things uh, de-escalate, but it could go anyway. I mean, the the wine moms of the world, the world are clamoring for a no-fly zone. You know, oh, it's <laughs> that thing. Yeah, well, amen to to basically all of those hopes, as far as I'm concerned. And it is kind of amazing. I mean, that's the narcissism that I was talking about—that the inability of Americans to think five feet outside of their own heads, let alone their own country, right? Um, and and we've been conditioned this way, you know, I mean, we've basically, liberalism in the ugliest possible sense of the word, which just assimilates all things to its own rubric, is is what you're watching when you watch, like, you know, people post the Ukrainian flag, and no, like, let's do a no-fly zone for, you know, for Zelensky, the internet's boyfriend, like, that is, uh, is <laughs> definitely, and, and then you sort of realize that there are human lives at stake, and, and that, you know, it's a matter, and this is, again, what I mean by a fallen world, right, it's a matter not of of at this point, things have gotten bad enough that it's it's not a matter of of whether human life will be lost, but how much human life will be lost. And and people, I don't think, are thinking on those terms. They're thinking in terms of well, we can find the perfect solution that's going to clean this situation up. I mean, we're, we are we are past that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I I sort of have been toying with resurrecting C.S. Lewis's speech. Um, which he gave, I believe, during World War II. Yeah, it was during World War II at, at, at Oxford, in which he said, war creates no absolutely new situation. It only makes the perpetual situation impossible to ignore. Um, and I think that's certainly true in terms of the, the fallen world stuff, in terms of the, you know, just how the actually awful things can happen. But it's also true in terms of the precarity of our situation. You know, the, the fact that, in fact, at any moment, we could be snapped off the face of the earth. The problem with that is that, you know, there actually do emerge scenarios and situations which are uniquely bad. And, and it seems to me as if this is one of them and, and our our inability to grasp that, at least at least in the States, I don't know if that's true, it's probably less true the closer you get to where you are, you know, but in the States, our, our inability to grasp that is really making it impossible for us to think outside of our fantasy world. There's... um. There's the kind of the, the the Marvel universe in which this plays out on uh, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, and then there is the 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 reality on the ground, which is much more um, 
yeah, it's it's much more gritty and it's much more loaded with the fears and history of the region, which a lot of people don't know. Um, and the, the fact that, I mean, if you go, if you go on the internet right now, uh, Putin is Hitler. That is the, the narrative. You know, obviously we've, we've located who is Hitler. We've located who is not Hitler, who is, you know, the valiant Azov battalion and, <laughs> you know, all of the, you know, the, 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 the more layers you peel back, the more complicated the situation gets. And, you know, the, the deeper into history you peer and you look at, you know, what exactly has happened in the last, uh, 20, 30 years, uh, the more, uh, you know, nuance the whole situation gets. Obviously, Putin is the aggressor here. I can understand why that that narrative fits. Um, but the the my my fear that I've seen here is that every everyone, even even in the region, people of my age essentially have taken on the mainstream narrative. Like they really cannot see um any any more nuance to it. And um I don't know, it's 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 a bit unsettling. I've I've had a strange last few days, not just because of the fear of what's going to happen, but the fact that um, it's I don't know what to call it, like narrative whiplash or something like that. It's just been too much. Like it's just the 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 fact that you know COVID is not a thing anymore. You know, Rogan saying the N word is not a thing anymore. Yeah. It's only Ukraine from and now. This is the thing that we and you know now we're having to find who are the racists in the Ukraine conflict. And to be honest, I, I just, I barely could spend any time on the internet. I just kind of uh, declared bankruptcy on, on, on Twitter and whatever was going on. And I just, you know, went back to cooking and minding my baby and all this type of daily stuff, which is obviously more and more interesting. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just made me lose my mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, it's vastly more important also to, to mind your baby and to, you know, all these things. Uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording about like, you know, how much time we do and don't have for writing. And my assumption is always if, if people is, if, if somebody's talented and isn't writing that much, it's because they've got more important things to do. And I think there's, there's so much content out there that you're right. It can be incredibly overwhelming to keep up with, you know, what is the apocalyptic world ending concern today. But what's interesting about the Hitler thing that you were observing is that it, it kind of means that all these narratives are the same narrative um, in the sense that, not in the sense that they relate to reality, because in reality, everything is, is different. But the fact that we have, that both sides actually of the, you know, West versus Russia conflict have identified Nazis and Hitlerians on the other side it doesn't mean that one side isn't right and one side isn't wrong. It just tells you something about how we think about these things. Because, And this is a, an old uh, Stalinist tactic and even Leninist tactic to identify everybody to the right of, of your chosen side as a fascist or as Hitler. Um, it's a kind of demonology. And it has... It, it has infiltrated not just the left, the way the left talks, but it's like it's the only historical event we know about the Holocaust. Um, it, we know that it was very, very bad. We know that the we know that Hitler was very, very bad. And that's all we know about it. That beyond that, that's all we know. And so every conflict, everything that we are currently traumatized about, is then cashed out in those terms, and including like you know the way that the vaccine mandates are sort of Hitlerian or the, the trans conflict is, is like Goebbels. And, and, you know, I'm guilty of making these comparisons sometimes as well, but it does mean that it's, it's kind of like when people play out their reenact their trauma over and over again, like it's got more to do with that kind of psychosis and that sort of reaction to trauma than it does to 
the reality of what's going on around you at all. Um, why do you think that this particular event in history has kind of become the the, the new, I mean, uh, this is a, a word that everyone uses, uh, the new religion, the new cult that people refer to? And, and Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually one that I've been sort of thinking out loud about on Young Heretics a lot. Mm-hmm. We've been doing a series of episodes on the Gulag Archipelago on Solzhenitsyn. And as one wades into that, you know, 1600-page tome. I did I did it volume by volume, so I sort of split it up. But, you know, the, the deeper you go into it, the more you realize, and, and Solzhenitsyn is very explicit about this comparison. He, he wants Stalin to be worse than Hitler. He wants to identify Stalin as worse than Hitler. He, he identifies Lenin as having invented the concentration camp. He does all sorts of things to kind of make Westerners, to shake Westerners out of what was clearly already that religion, out of this carapace of feeling that, like, there's only ever been one bad guy in history. He was the worstest guy. It was Hitler, right? And this, and and the response that I got as I started doing these episodes was like, I never learned about any of this in school, right? I learned all about the Holocaust, all about slavery, all these other atrocities. I never, ever learned about Stalin, let alone Mao, right? Or even Mussolini, you know, for that matter. Just like other bad guys from the from the 20th century um, were, were only a footnote if that. And the closest thing to it, I think, is in Tom Holland's book, Dominion, he talks about our having replaced actual demonology, that is actual Christian belief that there are powers above us which are bad and powers above us which are good. When we secularized, we kind of had to take that impulse and and put it somewhere else. We put it on Hitler. Um, But I I think it's, it's, you know, and in addition, there's all sorts of other things. There's, There's the proximity to it. There's the fact that, you know, uh, that that we we have Americans have a have a heart for Judaism and rightly so we view the Jews as God chose, God's chosen people and there's all of that. Um, but even beyond that, it's just the the horror of the idea that he might not have been an anomaly, that this was not actually some exceptionally uniquely bad person in the sense that he was born into the world like with with two horns on his head um but that rather he was simply an example of what the human heart is capable of under the right circumstances and he was an example of what happens when the human heart is so corrupted and has access to these vast new industrial resources and once you look at it that way then you have to admit that actually that's just what the 20th century revealed it revealed that you know without with with the receding influence of god and the church um and and the human heart basically left to its own devices we hoped in this sort of rousseauian way that that was going to lead us all into into a, a promised future of beauty and glory but actually it just showed that people are, are really, really awful. Um, and I, I think that that we've invented this Hitlerian demonology so that we can avoid looking at that truth and just carrying on in this, in this kind of utopian fantasy that most people are basically good and everything's going to be fine. I think that's just probably kind of a structure of, of um, any sort of narrative has to have that final final boss of evil um and i think that there's probably also a, a layer to it where you know you have a lot in in uh in kind of the jewish community especially Ashkenazi jewish a lot of people who are extremely creative who've kind of sourced that um that history and had have illustrated it in books there's been just m- many more writers and screenwriters and and people who could tell the story than for example i don't know in the armenian genocide or in you know Romanian communist, you know, the Piteshtia prison experiment or something. There's like three books that are not very well written about totally. these things, even though they're, 
you know, very horrible in themselves, but there's just not that type of representation in terms of the creative arts and you know, people getting Nobel prizes for their, for their literature. So I think that's probably something as well. Like, you know, we've really seen, it was like Schindler's List, you know, people, my grandma knew that movie and she knew what it was about. And it was really illustrated in a very emotionally poignant way. So I think that's probably also, you know, you could see how powerful the core narrative is and how, how fueled it is by images, you know, like for example, the George Floyd video, if the George Floyd incident would have passed unfilmed, it would have passed in silence uh, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have had any, you know, my mom wouldn't have known about George Floyd, but now she does because it was uh, narrativized through the, through the, <laughs> the medium. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is something also, I think, in, in what you're saying about the, the cheapening and the flattening out of every possible narrative, including grand historical catastrophes like like the Holocaust. I think, you know, you mentioned Schindler's List, and that's a really great example of, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, it's the subversive podcast, so I guess I'm supposed to air my, yes. my dissident views, but like, no. I, I, I really think that movie is, is awful. And, uh, I think, and I think it's awful in a very specific way, because you have, you have the great Holocaust accounts, the great Holocaust literature, things like Shoah and Night and, you know, these incredibly harrowing texts that force you up against the, how actually bad it was, um, without trying to tie a bow around it or neatly say that, and it was all okay because this, or then the Americans sailed and it was great. You know, like in order to reckon with something on the scale of the Holocaust, you actually have to look at it. Um, you know, another, another way to do this is go to the Holocaust museum, you know, or, or to visit the camps. But like, you know, when you actually stare at it, it really is staring into the void. And unless you've done that staring, you haven't actually told or listened to a story about the Holocaust at all. And, and, and Schindler's List has this kind of, you know, it's like to make the whole thing into a story about how some people got out, you know, and this, this guy was good, um, is actually to kind of, to, to cheapen it in, in some ways. And, and this is something that we do with all our narratives because of that Marvel movie effect. I love that phrase that you're, you're using, because that's right. You know, we, the, the, the Marvel movie is effectively the superstructure that we now apply onto every news item that there are good guys and bad guys and ultimately the good guys you know like even when the bad guys are kind of winning you know that the good guys will soar to victory in the end and like um the the neatness of that which it applies just as much to our kind of holocaust narrative as to our uh our george floyd narrative is is i think what makes us really so stupid when we start thinking about this stuff besides the fact that as uh, the other feature of what you mentioned is that like you know the a lot of the gulag accounts were obviously suppressed and and it whereas a lot of the holocaust survivors made their way to america and where they could where they could talk which is its own thing i guess yeah, there's there's um I, I can't for the life of me remember the uh, the other gulag account there's another relatively famous writer who wrote a very kind of uh, a similarly startling but very much more much much less marvelly version of the the um, the living in the in, in the gulag and who is not as uh, as famous as Solzhenitsyn and that not many people have heard of and I think uh, a lot of times when people talk about the gulags you know they mention him as kind of the the second something with an S uh, very complicated Russian name if, if I can remember uh, and he um, he essentially the fact that uh, Solzhenitsyn had hope in his account of the gulag that the gulag kind of was almost a transcendent experience it's like uh, you know the primo Le- levi uh, book you know uh, is this still a man or um uh, there's always hope at the bottom of these you know that that one can transcend these this guy's other book 
which I can't remember. Maybe you can because you've just done this research. I, I, no, I can't remember either. But I think I, I think I remember mention of it, and um, and that's really interesting because yeah, there is. I mean, <laughs> from a Westerner's point of view, Solzhenitsyn is almost unremittingly bleak. You know, he sort of constantly raises all these possibilities that maybe things aren't so bad. But no, actually, when you get down to it, it's really <laughs> worse. But he does have this Christian. I mean, you know, to me, it's actually a Christian outlook that there is that there's redemption inherent in suffering um and that you know once we have reckoned with how bad things are then we sort of find some form of uh soul formation that that happens within it and that's uh a, a, it's a trickier and different game to to play because it's different to say you know by the waters of babylon we we knelt down and wept when we remembered zion and out of that came our song you know like that that is sort of a different thing than it all turned out right in the end that's like making good of evil but you know at the same time uh he does uh, he, he you know he does plunk for that and i can see how that would seem uh disnified yeah i think uh, i think that's probably the thing like you said it's it's his christianity that that is uh is the twist in all of it <laughs> which uh, which this other guy i think he's more kind of a, a nihilist and essentially the, the what he lays out is just a, the I, I read part of that book a long time ago and it was just it's kind of, it's, um, it's like that, I think it's Thomas Ligotti book, which is just a kind of a dis- description of, of life as, as a, a huge meat grinder. And I feel like, I think that kind of the anxiety at the bottom of kind of this, the soulless neoliberalism is the, the, the inherent knowledge that, yeah, that is true. You know, that life is all just, uh, you know, it's just a meat grinder. You're born, you, you, you have, enjoy enjoy it as much as you can because then you know the 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 long the long silence comes and and we're all we're all floating into yeah, oblivion yeah yeah no this is so true and it's it's really important i think this is in nietzsche too at the beginning of um birth of tragedy uh he he starts talking about the supposed optimism of the greeks and the idea that greek culture is humanist and aspirational and sort of, you know, marbled with this beautiful sheen of the greatness that human beings can, can achieve. And he suggests that they, that this is a deceptive description of Greek culture because they actually had to wrest their optimism out of a deep pessimism that, that really their vision of the universe, if you get right down to their cosmology, was chaotic and nihilist and empty. Because there isn't a one god, there is this sort of, you know, flux of atoms within a void, much like what we now believe. I mean, John Adams already is writing to his friend that, like, you know, all of our philosophers are Epicureans. And this is true. Epicurus is basically the philosopher we all believe in subconsciously, who is the philosopher of atoms bouncing in a void and randomness and everything. Um, And Nietzsche, I think, suggests that if that's your underlying philosophy, then your whole cultural project has to be about, you know, finding and celebrating the beauty of that is possible in the here and now. You have to be all about, you know, how strong and handsome and good and fun and, and, and excellent things can get. Whereas if you have a more sort of redemptive cosmology underneath your, uh, your as, as a sort of substructure, then you can grapple more fully with the realities of how bad the world is and you start to look like a pessimist. Yeah, and I think the, the truth of it is that even if you are the most fun, the most, uh, the most great and you enjoy the most things, there's a... Uh, 
at that point where you get to to enjoy the fruits of, of of the society that you live in, that's when you realize that it's just more oblivion. It's just, you know, that's when the void just like opens up in front of you and you're like, oh, <laughs> totally. Totally. there's nothing on the other side. This is, yeah. I mean, the best opportunities for, I won't, I, I hesitate to even call it evangelism. When you start talking about evangelism, you think of like hitting people over the head with the Nicene Creed, you know, like you have to believe all these three points right now or whatever. But there are people are in desperate need of evangelism. And it's a, it's a much deeper and more basic kind of evangelism to do with like, is there absolute and eternal truth? Does our life, does our life have a purpose? These, these sort of really rudimentary questions, which we've been confused about by, now over a century of, of kind of nihilist thought. Um, the, the best moment for sort of inviting people to think about that is not the moment where they're at their worst and their lowest, but rather the moment where they've gotten everything that they want and they realize actually the things that I've been taught to water want are empty and they're going to go away and there's still a hole in the center of my heart. Um, and, and yeah, that's, I, I think that's really the like bait and switch at the end of the liberalism game it's like you're saying you know you sort of presented with this world of wonders you go forth to seek as many of them as you can possibly get and lo and behold vanity vanity all is vanity it's very shocking realization for people i think yeah and i i I know that a lot of people who are kind of now questioning the the liberal project you know trying to think about ideas and in the so-called post-liberal space are people who have been who've been through the through the meat grinder and come out (laughs) on the other side and been like you know, just people, you know, pursuing careers or I don't know, having the the girl boss experience <laughs> and uh, and not uh, not really. Yeah, not not really working out. And I think the, the, the other end of this and in a way what fuels the liberal project is the fact that if you don't get to experience this stuff and most people really don't, because these are these are aspirational things, you know, the high travel lifestyle, you know, um, getting an incredible career, studying at whatever university and things like that. It's just a, it's still a minority of, of people who get to do that. But it's kind of like the shining beacon on the hill where people yeah. don't get to the oblivion point. They just get to the point where they can have resentment towards the people who who get there. So it's like, um, it's like that feeling. I don't know if you've ever been overweight, but if you're overweight, you always think that the second I lose weight, when I'm going to be skinny, when I'm going to look the <laughs> way I want to look, uh, life is going to be good and things are going to be done. And then you're always, that's always kind of the the beacon on the hill trying to get there. And the, the thing is, once you get skinny, you have other problems. <laughs> you know, life is not necessarily You do, good. you do. And you're also like, you've devoted all this time and energy to getting skinny and you want to stay skinny. And yeah, totally. The In, in Ulysses, which is Tennyson's poem about Odysseus, you know, as an old man, after he's returned home from his wanderings, he has to go out again because he just needs the chase. He needs the wandering. And he says, he talks about that unexamined world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. And that's what kind of what you're talking about, right? That they create this incentive system for people to feel as if for someone out there, things are actually so locked in that they don't have any worries anymore. And, and yeah, the, the more, the closer you get to that, the more you realize it's not true, but it's a very, very powerful incentive structure. Um, I have a question for you actually about the girl bossery thing. Um, Cause I think this is a, the girl bossery narrative is an important dimension. It's not the only version of this, but it's probably the most compelling one for, for women. Um, men have a, maybe a slightly different one. And I asked this also to Peachy Keenan, who's another He's a writer of the American Mind, and um, 
and I'd, I'd love to hear your answer to it as well, because I, I sense that there is much more dissatisfaction with the girl bossery ideal um, than there are actual people trying to live a different way. So I know a lot of people who would listen to us making these critiques that we're making of the liberal mindset and the just kind of rat race that it creates and say, yeah, you're right. I'm miserable. I, I thought I would be so happy and successful working on the Hill or working for, you know, it, it, being in the boardroom or whatever, but actually this is empty and what I want is a family and what I want is, you know, the traditional lifestyle. And yet the people that say that to me are often incapable of like getting themselves off that train, you know, or diverting the flow of their lives. Um, have you discovered that this is the case and what's the antidote to this? Yeah, it's, it's tough because, uh, essentially everything's set up for that. Uh, if, if, you know, for example, if, if you're a, a young woman in in the year of our Lord 2022 <laughs> and you've made it and you've done what is expected of you and you've won at life, this is where you are. You have a career, you're making a lot of money. Um, every infrastructure has been set up around you to facilitate that. Uh, whatever you want to do outside of that, you can do as a hobby or, you know, you can take it on as an additional project to your existing workload. Uh, but it's not, it's not, life is not built for that. Like the cities where you're supposed to go are not built for that. Uh, the friends you have, they're not, they don't want that. They're not going to be your friends anymore. You need to get new friends. Um, every, everything in your life is telling you, you know, you, you can do that. Sure. You know, you know, go crazy, but this is the thing you have to do. And once you detach from that, you know, uh, you just not, you know, you, you already feel like you don't have, um, you know, what, what, what's my value? You know, it's, mm. it's just every, everything in society tells me that, you know, there, there's one place where you get value. Um, and a lot of women got this from their mothers as well. I mean, you know, God bless my mother. She's a, she's wonderful in many ways, but she kind of has instilled that in me that, you know, you need to be independent. Um, uh, there's a lot of resentment towards men, towards boomer. Boomer marriages have all sorts of baggage added to them. And some of that resentment is justified. You know, you don't really want to be dependent on a man who leaves you for a secretary, even if you're the secretary. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's all sorts of layers to it, but it's, um, it's the fact that you know the world is just not built for the alternative light. You really have to make a commitment. You really have to want it enough. You know, it's kind of like bodybuilding. You really have to want it enough to make uh -huh. the sacrifices required to to get there. We were yeah, we we were chatting before we started recording about Lent, which I guess is starting today. I don't know when people will listen to this, but when we're recording, it's Ash Wednesday. And one of the things I was saying about it is that it's it's one of those many things that you get to the end of your Lenten journey and you have this enormous richness, a whole story that you can tell all of a sudden that you started out, it's hard to give this up, but then you discovered this and you went through this period. And now here's Easter and either you're going to, you know, immediately reach for the scotch glass because you gave up whiskey and you really want it back, or maybe you'll never drink again, you know, and there's this whole sort of richness of life that exists in these kind of structured uh, more traditional forms of living. And if you give them up, it's not like your life is going to go badly or you're going to be punished or you'll set catch fire spontaneously. It's just that you won't have had that. You'll get to the end of Lent and nothing will be different. And this is true also, as you are suggesting of bodybuilding, right? That like, if you don't go to the gym today, your life will be exactly the same. If you do go to the gym for 
a year, like everything will be different. And and this is, I think, another obstacle to people getting off the sort of rat race track is that these the the richer, deeper, truer forms of life. And Aristotle talks a lot about this, actually. The richer, deeper, truer forms of life are rewarding in the long term, but have very little immediate power. And the things that you're being offered by the world have enormous immediate pleasure associated with them. And it's very obvious what their benefit is. The benefit of getting that next byline or getting a pay raise is like really immediate. But of course, by the end of it, it's like, you know, the, no, nothing changes after a year of, of that or two years or God forbid, a whole lifetime. Exactly. And it's just the, the, the problem is that a lot of the stuff was embedded in tradition. It was just, you know, you didn't really have um, a choice. I think a, a lot of the problems that people have now and a lot of the anxiety that people are de- are dealing with is the idea that, you know, um, you know, the choose your own adventure, the, the world is your oyster, smorgasbord, living, uh, whatever you want, you know, what should one want? You know, you have to go through, study the classics for 10 years and then maybe you can find, have an idea about, you know, what, what the good life is. And maybe even then you're a bit, you know, you're still kind of thinking about it. So there's, it's, it's very little, um, to anchor yourself in. And it doesn't surprise me that people are very anxious. I mean, when I was, when I was working in the city of London, I, I admit I went to to therapy. I went to my CBT person telling me to just calm down and not so many words. So it's just, it's, it's, it's really, you know, what do I do with my mornings? Even on the weekends, I just go to the gym all day. There's nothing to do, you know, meet a, meet a friend for brunch, you know, should I get drunk before noon? Do people do that? You know, always just yeah. confusion, <laughs> continuous <laughs> confusion. So yeah, I, I, I really do um, think that people don't realize how, how much wisdom is encoded in, you know, in, in, in these traditions and, you know, in stigma itself, you know, I, I wrote that piece a long time ago for you guys. Um, it's, it's really important, you know, it's, it sounds like a total negative, but it, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's interesting that we keep, sort of circling back around this idea of the grooves or the tracks that people's lives travel in. I think that's related to the liberalism conversation that we started out with. It's related to the way that people narrativize things. And and here too, right, it's not just about you wake up in the morning, what are you going to do? It's about like, what are the guideposts that exist for you about, you know, that have to do with stigma, what, what's stigmatized, what's normal, what what's expected of you, all of these things you know, always exist in a society, but we live in a society, hashtag, we live in a society that has, that has cleared away, you know, so many of the good wholesome ones that previously existed. And in some sense, that means that our, our job as intellectuals, as people living in that, in the world is to, you know, lay down the, the foundations of new guideposts that several generations down the line will will raise up and and by the way not all of this is the fault of the the great satan liberalism right i mean some of this is the fault of the digital revolution which was bound to come and which has you know made a lot of ways of living obsolete that our our parents and our forefathers knew and you know there's 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 also excitement in that in addition to, to despair like the 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 facts that so many conventions now look quaint or cringe or out of date 
is probably also a result of the fact that a lot of those conventions existed in a world where you weren't in constant contact with one another. And, you know, there was no alternative to the to the Fed when it came to currency and all of these things that are now changing. Um, the project is always, I guess, to, to be laying to be to be marking the outlines of the, the ancient truths in this in this new world, so that people can have grooves that they walk on that are better than the ones we had, you know, when when we were growing up. Yeah, and in many ways, you know, the the great Satan liberalism essentially just made things too comfortable, and people do have a um, a um, revealed preference for comfort. Like, for example, you would have to have an extremely good relationship with your extended family because they were essential to your survival. And and in, in the good good old olden days, you really mm-hmm. needed to know the baker, the butcher, the the shoemaker, and be be on good terms with them. You needed your community because you needed products and services from them. Nowadays, you really do not need it. And it seems that people, you know, have a revealed preference to have food delivered to their door to, you know, get uh, get everything in a, in a much more frictionless way. And I understand. I mean, I'm I'm a purchaser of, of the, the odd frictionless thing occasionally as well. So I, I get it. Um, and in a way, yeah, it doesn't you really don't you can't really lay it at the feet of John Stuart Mill. You know, if it, it wouldn't really have worked without all of the technology that enables us to do this stuff. Uh, but at the same time, it it kind of tells us what what human beings are. I think that the 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 need, the the kind of deprivation is part of being a human being in, in, in some very core way. And when you take away all of the deprivation, there's something you take away from the human being as well. Uh, because, you know, our social, the social animal aspect of, of being human really ties into the fact that, you know, there's a need there. We need to be social. Uh, and maybe you just, you just don't get to be that social if you don't have that need. You know, the need precedes the, the act. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that as well, because obviously I love my in- indoor heating. I love the, all of the amenities and, you know, which one would I uh, sacrifice to get back to, you know, being completely traditional? Do I need a wood fire oven? Do I need, you know, it's it's that negotiation that I'm also, I'm, I'm very confused about. Like if people are trying to to get, you know, guardrails for me, I don't know, guys, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> like tinkering with my own, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really a complicated thing. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying with Solzhenitsyn that the, this idea, this Christian idea that redemption comes through suffering, it comes with the sort of scary corollary, which is that redemption doesn't come if you don't suffer. And, and I don't think that's like a hard and fast rule. I know plenty of people that are very spiritually advanced, whatever that means, you know, who, who have lived relatively comfortable lives. But in general, I think the the world carves your soul out of you through the blows that you take. You, you become who you are in these, in these moments of deprivation. And yeah, it's sort of like when you go on vacation, nobody wants anything to go wrong. You know, you don't want to book the wrong flight or get stranded at a bus stop or whatever, but when it does, that's your best story. That's your vacation story that you live with for your whole life. And it's all like that. You know, there, there, there are these, there are these wants and needs that, suffering creates in you. Um, but you would, you know, you wouldn't wish suffering on your worst enemy and you even, you know, it's, it's probably ill-advised to tell somebody like what meaning they have to draw out of their suffering. That's something I think a lot of, a lot of Christians get wrong, you know, that somebody comes to you and says, well, I, I have terminal illness. And you say, well, there's, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, like God has a purpose for all of this, you know, as opposed to saying, well, like, what's the, 
you know, what's that valley of death like for you? You know, to be able to sit with somebody in the ashes is a very appropriate idea for, for Ash Wednesday, right? The, the, um, and to then say, you know, discover together what you can get out of this is a very different thing. But as you say, like, it, it all requires some form of need and, and pain and, and reckoning with the difficulties of the world. And nobody wants to go pursue, nobody wants to run toward the worst parts of life. Like that's, that's something that only, only saints can do. Um, and on some level, I guess it's like the world's going to deliver up the suffering, whether you like it or not. It's just whether you're prepared to meet it and, and find redemption in it. Yeah. And, and, and there are different types of suffering as well. I feel like a lot of people are suffering right now uh, in ways that are kind of indescribable and, and deep. And uh, and the suffering of the of real world is coming, I think, unfortunately. I mean, you can see this in, in inflation infrastructure is crumbling, you know, just see the, the situation that we're in is un, unstable. It's not going to be, um, how, how long is going to run this way? It could be hundreds of years. It doesn't matter, but the, the direction is downward. Uh, and yeah, people are going to feel, starting to feel the pain. And unfortunately, maybe that's, you know, we're just, you know, back in the cycle of history. Um, hopefully not. I know you're a very optimistic person. I, I like that about you. No, and but you. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's sort of like we were talking about. I'm op, I'm optimistic because I'm pessimistic. You know, about this stuff, I'm I'm quite pessimistic actually. I, I think, you know, when you're dealing with a nation or with a person, you're dealing with the terminal patient. It's just a question of time. You know, everybody dies, everything dies, all the best aspirations of humanity dies, and and you know, if that's not pessimistic enough for you, I don't know. I don't know what is. But the, the you know, and, and so any kind of optimism that you do have, or any hope for redemption that you do have, I think has to begin from that premise, right? This is what so many people are currently lacking is saying they feel like crap and they don't know what the baseline is for human life, for one thing. And also, like, nobody has ever given them an account of why their needs aren't being satisfied and and why they their world is so empty. I mean, the people that do that, even in a, you know, sort of mass-produced sort of way, gain incredible clout and notoriety. I mean, look at Jordan Peterson, right? He's just here telling you kind of why your life sucks. Um, and he's telling you that as if you were a being with a soul and aspirations and more than a body. And people are delighted to discover that, even though it means actually that their their immediate experience might get very much worse. You know, they might immediately realize that they, they are lacking way more than they thought. But the minute somebody acknowledges that they can stop pretending that everything is, everything is fine. The world's going to be hunky dory, which is also, I think something that that's a kind of joy that you find in your suffering. Once you're able to acknowledge that you're suffering at all. You, you seem like a person who, who has it together. Like you, <laughs> you've got, you've got things figured out. You're obviously famously uh, on point with your physical fitness. This is uh, one of one of the one of the the layers of 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 Spencer. If you have not known Spencer is a very uh, into uh, is it bodybuilding or just gym? I don't know what what you fitness. I I'm too amateur to call it bodybuilding. It's like in that it's in that vein, but yeah, uh, just weightlifting. Weightlifting, yeah, exactly, and and obviously, you know, you're you're always in, in in good high spirits, and you're so excited about what you do. I mean, if you were to have your Jordan Peterson moment, <laughs> uh, what would you counsel people to do? Like, what well, what's what's the first step of getting out of the out of the hellscape 
Well, first of all, I'm very glad that the elaborate tissue of lies which I construct to portray myself as having it together is so effective that even somebody as astute as yourself is fooled by it. No, I mean, I, I think that um, I am I have always been a sort of person of sunny temperament and disposition. Um, but I, I, I do suspect that I am I'm less bothered by most things than most people. And that consequently, I am more likely on any given day to sort of get up and get about, you know, get about my business. Um, and life really is just getting about your business. I mean, you, you're you're not going to be born. I'm never going to wake up and be six foot five and become a, a basketball player. You know, not everybody is going to start a podcast about ancient literature. Not everybody is going to write something that gets published, you know, all, none of these things. I think that because the people giving the advice are often people that do those things, it's easy to think that that's what success means or, or looks like, but you know, you're, you're, you're built for something. You're, you're a machine with a purpose and you're not just, you know, a sort of accidental concatenation of blood and flesh and, and meat. You're, you're a key that fits into a keyhole. You know, that's the first, first step, right? There is a God, he made you for something. And after that, I think, you know, looking at the the pessimism of the world that we've been talking about, right, accepting how bad things can actually get, connect your emotions to what's going on around you. Like, it, switch off social media if that's what it takes. Stop listening to these grand narratives that we, you and I have been now discussing, right, that this, all of these, this kind of cloud of stories that people tell you about where you fit in capital W, the world, right? And instead, look directly around you and just ask, you know, what is what am I supposed to be doing right now? And and get about it. I mean, I, I, I do think that that's like, it sounds simple, but that's a huge part of it. And, you know, you have to fold that, that practical advice to get about it into this kind of Aristotelian or Christian idea that you are a, a being with a purpose. And um, stop conceiving of yourself as somebody that might just be here as a blob to do nothing. Like that's that's not how it works. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess I would just say, like, you know, um, wake up in the morning, pray to God, and then work with the assets that are that are around you. Like it's sometimes it's going to be terrible, but some, most of the time it's going to be okay. You know, there's going to be good stuff and bad stuff, and and you really just have to kind of stop thinking of yourself as as somebody that might not be here for any reason you are you're here for a reason and and it actually doesn't matter that much how you feel when you wake up in the morning as much as it does you know whether you're going to get about the thing that you know you're supposed to be doing yeah that's that's great advice especially about the fact that you know you kind of have to be present i know this sounds a little bit eastern mysticism but look around have uh, anchor yourself in the moment. It's just to me, sometimes it's just being so online and having my brain fried by all of these applications. It's just the question like, what's next? You know, what, what does my surrounding tell me that the next thing in reality has to be? Cause outside of that, I can just be in like standby, just, you know, having 17,000 thoughts bounce around my brain, but without that anchoring in reality, I just, you know, go, go on, do the thing. And then that, that kind of puts, gives you a little bit of momentum and then you can do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Yeah. Just don't, don't let yourself linger. <laughs> the being in your living in real life is so important. I, you know, you say I've got it together. One, the way that I would describe that is I, I'm an incredibly lucky, blessed person. You know, like I've, I've been, I have all of these wonderful things around me in my immediate life. 
fiance with whom I'm deeply in love. I, um, you know, the work that I do is amazing. And, you know, each of those things did fall into place gradually as I, as I, as Joseph Campbell would say, followed my bliss, right? There's that kind of homing device of joy, which uh, is so, so different from being happy or being satisfied or having like had a good meal um, and comes from this richness of experience that like, this is, oh yeah, that's, that's where I'm really hitting it. Aristotle called it eudaimonia. You call it whatever you want, but you you know it when you feel it and you can move toward it, right? You know, move toward the people in your life that that uh, that created and you move toward the activities and all that stuff. In order to be doing any of that, you have to have your antenna up for the feel or the, you know, qualitative experience of, of being good at being you. And one of the things I noticed when my Twitter addiction was at its height, I'm now, I'm sort of a recovering Twitter addict. I have very strict rules about it now, um, precisely because I noticed at one point that one of the things Twitter had taken from me was that uh, in the moment kind of antenna where I could, I could feel emotions that were related to what was going on around me. And instead, I woke up every day in a cloud of emotion that had to do with what was going on in, quote unquote, the world, right, um, that that was mostly constructed for me by Twitter. And in order to break through that, you've, you've got to log off. I mean, there's really no other way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Twitter addictions <laughs> is a huge subject for me as well. I've been trying to, to, to manage it myself. It's a, uh, it's, it's an, it's a, an amazing tool. Like you said, I, I have only, only good things in a way to say about it, but also it's, it's so good uh, that it's, it's kind of, corrupting in a way yeah it just gelatinizes my my attention span <laughs> it's uh yeah do you have any good tips for uh for kicking the habit <laughs> for kicking the habit not really do you rules having very the, serious rules the only thing that works for me besides prayer is um is taking the app off my phone i just i only do it on desktop now and, yeah but you uh, can get you can get to it through the browser, man. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this I is uh, such a lame way of doing it, but that's the no. part of the point. Is like now it's lame, and so I have to work at it. Yeah, no, it it does it does help. Ads just like one slide, of, like I don't know, <laughs> veneer of of uh, of problem to 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 it, but no, it doesn't doesn't work for me. I yeah, I just to be honest, I'm if I don't have the app on my phone, I'm I just you know click through the screens and look, look at other things, look at pictures of from five years ago or something. So I find yeah. something to do. So the phone, I think is, you know, the portal, I need to regulate my, my activity with that one. Um, this wouldn't be the subversive podcast, but I didn't ask you a very subversive question. Uh, you mentioned your fiance, you are uh, openly gay. That's right. Okay. Yes. Um, I wonder if you read Bronze Age Mindset. <laughs> that is not where I thought this question was going. I certainly did. In fact, I reviewed it with the American Mind, but go on. Yes. Have you read it? Okay, good. Um, there is there is a, a, um, a fragment in there, which I thought was really interesting. Obviously, I have it here in, in, in Toto. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. He speculates on the origins of, of the, the modern kind of homosexual mind. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it draws on Palia and, you know, the idea that, you know, you have kind of very, very sensitive, very creative uh, boys who, um, you know, are disillusioned by masculinity. And then they, uh, they kind of sublimate that disillusionment at the modern world and they, they turn into 
kind of a, a rebel against what they perceive to be the, the, the suppressing force. Um, he takes it to a kind of a, a different level where, um, you know, by trying to escape the, um, the, what they perceive as the, as the oppressor force, they become kind of foot soldiers of the regime or, you know, he, uh, he calls it, um, the gay is a spiritual foot soldier of the new regime and he is born uh, to be its enemy. So it's, <laughs> I don't know, this is obviously a subversive question, but I wonder what your, what your feeling is about the series. Because I found it, you know, it's one of the things that I remember from reading the books. I was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you know, it makes you think. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do remember that passage and it's been a while. So I, forgive me if I sort of misinterpret what he's saying mm-hmm. in it, but I, it's my understanding that there is running through that book, which I actually really liked, by the way. I, I, I you know, I, I don't mean to run it down. I, I found it really interesting. I had some problems with it, but um, running through it, it seems to me there is a kind of unspoken distinction between the G H E Y gay and the like actual homosexual person or practice mm-hmm. and the g-h-e-y gay is kind of what he's talking about there this is his online way of talking about it right that that the gay is like the kind of not just actually homosexual but like you know limp-wristed effeminate mm-hmm. uh annoying fake and gay is the term that you use to describe something that yeah I, th- I think in this case he actually at least the way i interpret it might, i might not i'd be mistaken but I'll, yeah, I'll just read you the the last bit of okay. it just maybe a minute so um it's like the the drama of his spirit is reinterpreted on sexual terms he has convinced himself that the feeling of suppression and dread that he had uh, that had accompanied him his whole life was because his sexual desires uh, or sexuality had been repressed by society uh and scared quotes he forgets how these sexual desires developed in the first place that the desires themselves were a circuitous result of the truth that dawned on him in silence the truth of the utter utter subjection and domestication of the space in which he found himself in becoming gay he believes he is escaping that sense of primal limitation and subjection that he felt as a small boy he has reinterpreted his entire drama as a maudlin story of sexuality suppressed or oppressed by a retrograde social and political norms uh, in this, he becomes an unwitting pawn himself of the very power that as a young boy he had intuited to be the enemy, the great suffocating, the great and suffocating shadow of our time that smothers all higher life out. The gay is the spiritual foot soldier of the new regime when he is born to be its enemy. Um, yeah, that's. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So <laughs> this is, yeah, this is where he interprets actual homosexuality as basically one among a number of responses to the problem that afflicts us all, especially all men, right? That we're born into this kind of cloying atmosphere where everything is tamed and domesticated. There's no room for piratism. There's no room for domination and exploration. And so we cope with this in various different ways. But but what we must do instead is kind of sort of adopt this Nietzschean transvaluation of the whole thing and cut through it all and reject it all. But, But then homosexuality is basically like one ostensible way to sort of rebel against society except it just ends up getting kind of incorporated and assimilated back into this what we would call the kind of great satan liberalism right exactly Um, (laughs) and and i think that there (laughs) there's a version of this passage that is not only true but gets more true by the day and that is you know you look at these polls that come out where gen z is getting more and more lgbtq plus ia whatever He's come out fairly regularly now, and the Pew did one that was pretty robust. 
And it's obvious that this is the exact same phenomenon that's happening when like more and more people claim to be Native American on the census, uh, which is now happening in these vast numbers that can't possibly reflect more Native American people, but must reflect some incentive to claim that identity, right? And I think that people are incentivized to claim both of these identities for much the same reason. Um, and there's a kind of faux rebellion in it, which is actually just submission to the regime. And I'd go even one step further with, with BAP and say that if you feel as if you have to pretend that your sexuality is something other than it's not in order ostensibly to escape, but actually to reinforce and find value within this regime, then you are your actual sexuality is probably going to get twisted and deformed. Like you, you probably whatever your actual impulses and desires are, um, you are likely to bend them away from their most normal path. If you know abnormalcy is what's what's rewarded, and that's that's the situation in which we find ourselves. All of that I would completely agree with that on. But I'm working there with a concept that I'm not even sure that BAP has or or would would accept, um, which is the concept of like a baseline of what your true self is. Um, in that passage, it almost seems to me like in a sort of Judith Butlerian way, like desire is, is almost entirely constructed um, and consists in a response to sort of base Freudian impulses, if, if anything at all. And I'm less of a Freudian than that. I, I actually think that if you can spend a lifetime in careful self-examination over a topic and still not find that your desire for X or Y is like constructed or fabricated out of some trauma in your past or some, um, I have enough trust for the human psyche to say that like you would get to the bottom of it if you worked at it. And if you're not getting to the bottom of it, maybe there's no sublimated anything there at all. And this is one of the central things for me that, you know, as I realized that I was gay, um, I did have to ask myself, right? Like, you know, are these typical explanations true? Am I, was I abused? Did I have a bad relationship with my father or whatever? None of that's true. And I think the recourse in these cases when confronted with somebody like me, the recourse of Freudians or of even Paglia to some extent is to just say, well, you know, you must not real. there must be some corner of your lizard brain where you don't realize that this is what you're doing, where you don't. the same thing is true, was true when, when people talked about penis envy, right? When there was this kind of, when women were all supposed to desire penises, to have penises, like you would have a few examples of women that obviously did have some kind of psychological tick around having a penis. And then you would generalize that to the whole world. And you would say, and if you don't, think that if you don't feel that way expressly, like here's something you did in the third grade that shows you obviously in the back of your mind actually did really want a penis. And like, I think that that's, that's the same way with this. It's like, that's a very real thing that he's identifying that people, especially younger people are doing. Um, but I can't find any trace of it in myself. And so I've rejected as like a wholesale description of the phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's my feeling about a lot of, a lot of the book. There's a lot of, extremely valuable and and just you know mind-blowing insight in there but it is kind of the the the, the narrative in the background kind of uh it's, it's it's a declaration it's almost like a declaration of war like this yeah. is how things are and even though there's a lot of um interesting uh, revelation in it uh it kind of it needs to maintain this pace of okay this is this and you know i'm i am now uncovering the truth of of reality for you and uh yeah it's um 
obviously that's the structure of the book. It has to be this way, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting book and I, yeah, I've recommended it before people should read it. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, I've, I'm a, a woman who is very adjacent almost, you know, uh, to a fault to, uh, to the, um, dissident, right. Hmm. Uh, I've had people who were like out and out misogynists on this podcast. I mean, it's, it's fine by me. I don't, I, that's, that's the thing. I really, I really don't mind it, but I wonder yeah. what, what your experience has been. Cause you've, you've also been kind of in these circles. You've, you know, some of these people, you, you engage with this material, you read stuff. I mean, how, how has it been for you? Um, you know, it, it can be, can be a bit tough sometimes especially if you're like on twitter and you're just absorbing it continuously oh interesting yeah i mean it's very very difficult i i think i'm like you in this way it's very very difficult to actually hurt my feelings or or offend me in part because like my life is going so great and like i've never really you know i was really lucky that my parents were both super accepting of me so i haven't internalized a lot of this stuff and it's very easy for me to read some dweeb on Twitter and think like, he's probably a lot less happy than I am. And it wouldn't be worth I mean, I do I I actually have a rule that I don't quote tweet and dunk on accounts that have lower follower counts than mine. So I only I only punch up on on Twitter for this reason that I, I most of the time, you know, if somebody's really just hurling insults at you, or saying like, you only think that because you're a fag, like, whatever, man, like, you know, my best friends in high school called me a faggot. Like, <laughs> that's, that was that's how I that's how I make friends with people. Um, <laughs> And, and so, so that part of it, whatever, I mean, I, I, and in the conservative movement more generally, uh, both the more trad conservative movement that is skeptical of homosexuality full stop and in the more sort of libertarian, uh, conservative movement, I've been really graciously and warmly received at every level. I mean, they're always like any person, you have to operate with some social awkwardness. And so, for example, when we sent out invites to the wedding, we had this whole thing about like, are we going to include a little asterisk for some people to say like, we're inviting you because we love you, but we know that you might not be able to come. And we would feel like that would be, you know, we don't want you to feel uncomfortable and whatever. And we finally just decided like, you know, let people be adults and and make their own choice. So there's that sort of stuff. Um, But no, I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of, I am a liberal in this sense. Like I, I really don't think that everybody needs to be cheerleading for me or, or uh, even happy about how my personal life goes. I have made elsewhere the case for sort of what my view on this subject looks like. And I, I, I've received a lot of thoughtful responses. Some saying, wow, I've never thought of it before. Some saying, you know, that's obviously wrong. And that, that all seems fine. That seems like, this seems like an example of the kind of thing that reasonable minds could differ about. Um, I think that in the mix of the dissident, of the like serious dissident, right. That's actually interested in accomplishing tasks, you know, um, that there's some possibility that like down many, many steps down the line, if we ever gain any power again in this country, like, we'll have to have some hard conversations about whether like I'm allowed to just live my life. And and then, then we'll have, that's the only time we'll have problems. I mean, I don't know if you watched, there was a debate or discussion between Douglas Murray, Dave Rubin, Yorm Hazoni, and Sorab Amari at uh, the and National. The con one. Yeah I, yeah, I heard about it, but I didn't watch it. So, I mean, that's the kind of conversation that I think, you know, we we have to get down to brass tacks on, and I also think that most post-liberals 
kind of trail off when it comes to like, what do you actually want on this? Um, and there is a, some anxiety with me, like, what do you, you know, what do you actually want? Because um, I, I kind of know, I think, what I want. Like, I, I want there to be some sort of, I want to be able to engage in some sort of uh, ritual of observance that I'm committing my life to this man. I don't want anybody to pull me out of my house for that. And then I want marriage between a man and a woman to be at the center of our society. Like, I'm very bullish about centralizing heterosexuality and um, endorsing it in schools. And, you know, the state has an interest in procreation that doesn't have in, in my relationship. I'm on board with all of that. Um, but, you know, so so that's what I want. I know what I want. I want that world. Yeah. But I, I wonder what world some of my colleagues want. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fair. And I think that's essentially the same issue you have with women in general. Like, you know, what what is the role of women in the integralist state or whatever uh, whatever type of... Uh, of stable moral structure we are to, uh, to, to base our, our society of the future on. Um, I, in a way, obviously I understand that that is needed. And in a way I understand that there, there are going to be limits to it. Um, you know, and, and maybe my mix is not going to be the one that gets picked. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'm going to be lower on the totem pole. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really complicated thing. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you as well. Cause you know, it's something that I, I think about as well, you know, what, you know, should, should women vote? You know, that's something I think <laughs> about. It's, uh, should, should anyone vote? <laughs> that's also something <laughs> I think about. And so that's part of being uh, on the post-liberal right. So, uh, that's, that's also why I have this podcast. Like I really want to explore this, these ideas. Um, do I have an answer for that? I mean, I could probably tell you what I think it should look like, mm-hmm. but, uh, I don't know if anyone wants to invest their Bitcoin into my project. <laughs> so well, I wonder, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, to some extent, I think you you don't necessarily have to hammer these things out point by point before you embark upon them. You discover things as you go. And like, and there's a big difference between signing on for a project where you will somehow be like your current life will somehow be outlawed, right? Where it will be illegal to hold a job as a woman or illegal to uh, marry a man if you're a man or whatever. Um, there's a difference between that and saying, I can accept a world in which my personal lifestyle is not elevated as the central aspirational lifestyle. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of wiggle room for various members of the dissident or, or, or new right uh, to kind of come together on that, that like you, uh, you, you don't have to outlaw something in order to discourage it or decentralize it or, or whatever. And a lot of people who just want to live their slightly eccentric lives would be very on board with a world where, you know, certain kinds of life, you know, like an example of this, although there are problems with it, is the child tax credit, right? Like as a, as a woman, you would not thereby be forced to have a child, but you would have incentives and advantages to having a child. I mean, um, is that kind of what you're, I mean, you, you mentioned that you've been thinking about what you would want for women in, in the new world order. Is that sort of where you are too, or do you have a different idea? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, um, you know, the, what, what elites have been doing since the dawn of time is probably the, the, the best way to organize this stuff, you know, just, just, you know, do, do what, what you choose, but just don't make it the standard for everyone. And, you know, this, this constant revolution to, to liberate everyone from, from things that are actually very useful, you know, like bourgeois norms, whatever you want to say about them, they, they offer quite a, 
a useful backbone to, to society. And, you know, if, if everyone could adhere to them, you know, be it, uh, be it same sex, opposite sex, I think uh, things could be uh, quite, quite useful, you know? So if, if it's marriage, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not opposed to any sort of, uh, of type of it, but if, if there is more of it is, is always better than less of it. So, um, yeah. it's, um, yeah, I know we're coming up on time now and I cannot leave you before I ask you the question of the show, which is, do you have a subversive thinker, you know, living or dead writer, philosopher, ancient or modern, uh, that you would like to see more, um, yeah, in, in, in the, in the limelight and people should, that people should read a bit more. Okay, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and so I stressed out in the shower before <laughs> because I was like, I have to sound so cool, I have to say somebody that nobody suggested. Um, so I think I've come up with a really good one, but you can tell me if somebody's already suggested this. Have Have you ever encountered or have you been uh, told to go read uh, Gorgias of Leontini? No. no All right, no. there we go. That's my first victory. Nice. So, um. <laughs> Among the many, so the sophists were the enemies of Socrates, according to Plato, right? Plato has this idea that that there was Socrates, and then there were all of these, like, kind of sketchy uh, shysters who would sell knowledge to ambitious young men. And usually that knowledge had to do with rhetoric and rhetorical prowess, because in a democratic society, if you are rhetorically skilled, then you can get your way, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where we get, I mean, he, after Socrates was killed, he was killed for sort of being like the sophists. And then Plato embarks upon a career long smear campaign to basically distinguish Socrates from the sophists and then from also the, the quote unquote pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, Gorgias is one of squarely in that camp. He is, um, there's a, a dialogue with his name, Gorgias, uh, or Gorgias, if you want to be very pretentious. And so people who, like me, who love and trust Plato are inclined to kind of write Gorgias off as a shyster and a, and a relativist and all the things, that all the nasty things that sophists ostensibly were. Um, the difference, the big difference with Gorgias is that we actually have some speeches by him that survive, um, one of which is called the Encomium of Helen. So the, my second victory, I hope, is that this is a short text that everybody can go away and, and read very quickly. And it is, you know, you can read it quickly, but you can also read it slowly and sort of digest. Truly subversive is the word for it. I mean, the the defense of Helen, the encomium of Helen is basically an attack on the possibility of rational thought and argument um, in which he says, you know, there are all these different reasons why Helen might have gone off to Troy. She might have been seduced. She might have been drugged. um, She might have been physically forced. Or she might have been persuaded by by words, by logos. Um, and all of these things are the same. They're a kind of coercion. And so speech and 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 rational thought is a form of getting people forcing people to do what you want, just like physical violence is, and just like um, uh, just like drugs drugs are, and just like sexual appetite are. Um, so it obviously kind of, you know, he collapses the possibility of free will in a big way, but he's also striking at the heart of kind of Athenian optimism about, well, if we get together and we talk it out, you know, we'll be able to figure out the right answer. So not uh, obviously in the end, the viewpoint that I want to endorse, but definitely one that I think people who are currently in the like, you know, shit lib tradition who are just like really confident that we can all be reasonable and talk to one another, everybody should grapple with, with Gorgias and, and not enough people do. 
I think a, a, a lot of people have come to, to, to that realization. And I think that's why this whole conversation about post-liberalism is taking off so much yeah. because that's, I think that's one of the, the, the cornerstones of it. You know, the possibility of rationality, you know, what does individual being an individual mean and what is freedom? These are the three main questions that, you know, everyone in this space grapples with. And yeah, rationality is, is a big one. The idea that, you know, we're, we're just going to, meet in the marketplace of ideas and, and hash it out and truth will come, come up actually might not. Yeah. So I, I'm really keen to, to read uh, this. Um, and um, I also want to point people towards the young heretics podcast. It's, it's a wonderful podcast. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. Spencer. I mean, he's, he's been talking here for an hour and a half. If you haven't been persuaded yet, nothing can save you because he's obviously <laughs> very, very well-spoken and he is, he's, he's, even better uh, related to the classics. And he really works hard on this podcast. So thank you so much, Spencer, uh, for everything you do. Go to the American Mind podcast as well, the Roundtable. Wonderful podcast. I never miss it. It's it's great with uh, James Poulos, uh, Ryan Williams, um, the occasional guests, like everyone mm-hmm. on the on the editorial staff at the at the American Mind is there. Really great takes. Um, and um, any other place that you would like to for people to go? Oh, uh, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah, the the main place is to go to Young Heretics, uh, which is wherever you get your podcasts, uh, or you can just go to youngheretics.com and leave a review and all all sorts of good stuff. Um, You mentioned the American Mind, uh, which I think is maybe, you know, in my humble opinion, is one of the places for people to read and talk about the stuff we've been discussing. Uh, And then the Claremont Review of Books is the other publication which we put out. I don't, I can't remember who mentioned that, but. Yeah, that's that's me. That's where I am. Excellent. So, yeah, please do sign up, listen to the podcast. And I thank you again for coming on. This has been a long time coming. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a pleasure. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>